Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Fans, July's underway, and it's a great month for sports. If you're into sports betting, Bet Online is where you can find it all, from the NBA and hockey playoffs to baseball's marquee matchups, including prop bets and futures. BetOnline has all the latest odds, news, and information for all of your online sports betting needs. Visit the website today or use your mobile device to join and receive 50% welcome bonuses on your first deposit. So before the next tip-off, face-off, or pitch, head on over to BetOnline and start playing today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook expert. Welcome again, everybody, and thanks so much for subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Mike, Mark, and Barry with you on this episode, and we've got another Hall of Fame edition of Major League Beginnings. Our guest spent his entire 20-year career with Houston, was a seven-time All-Star, had more than 3,000 hits, and was the first player to be enshrined in Cooperstown wearing an Astros cap. And guys, I know we're all excited to have Craig Biggio with us. Mike, I am so excited because when you think of Craig Biggio, obviously you think of the Houston Astros, but you also think of a dirty helmet, the pine tar on the on the back of Biggio, uh, doubles, the way he led off games, and also his unselfishness throughout his career really resonates with me. Can't wait to hear his Hall of Fame stories. Well, Craig, 20-year Hall of Fame career, and frankly, any chance we get to touch base with uh, Buddy of Barry's and Mark's is a thrill for all of our listeners. So thanks so much for the time. Glad to be part of it. Thanks for asking me. You know, when we look back at your body of work, which is extraordinary, and most of our listeners are familiar, more than 3,000 hits, more than 600 doubles, the numbers I could list uh, ad nauseum possibly, but it's the memories that seem to stick with you guys the most. When you look back at your career, what is that signature moment for you? You know, it's a good question. I have a, I, you know, people ask me that a lot. Like, what's your, what, you know, what do you remember the most? What is your, your mo- and to me, I can't just answer one thing. I think it's kind of accumulation of three different things. One would be, you know, being part of the Houston Astros for 20 years and being loyal and committed to one city and one organization. Uh, two would be, you know, obviously going to the World Series. We talked about the World Series. Uh, and then finally, uh, I think it was after whatever it was, uh, 18 years, and finally getting there and giving that to the fan base or to the state of Texas, because Texas is never to the World Series. So to be part of that was pretty cool. The end result wasn't, you know, and then the accumulation of being loyal uh, to one organization, one city, and to get accepted into the Hall of Fame and to be able to give that back to the fans Um was really so it's it's kind of for me it's not just the one signature moment I mean I, I you know I left out the 3,000 hits too because that's another you know the 3,000 hits was uh you know again to give that back to the fans to my family um you know to be able to be, to do that uh you know was uh it was really special so I, I guess it'd be those four things I'm sorry it's just not one uh but it's just kind of like you know after 20 years you have a lot of things that happen to you and for me, those four things were, were pretty special in my mind. Was it uh, something you anticipated happening, the idea of staying with Houston for that long? Because you get an opportunity, but you know the business of the game. Uh, nobody really can 
be promised that type of well, future. Again, you got my you got Barry's on on this uh, on this call also. So I mean, he's my agent, and and I I never wanted to leave Houston, uh, and I think a lot of players, uh, you know, they, they never really want to leave the city. They you know you come up to the minor leagues and and you you dedicate yourself there, and then all of a sudden you get to the big leagues and you want to stay, and you everybody wants to be like Cal Ripken and 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 make it last the whole time, but it's really hard to do. And and I never really wanted to leave. We came close one year. Uh, I think it was like 94 or something like that and didn't want to leave. But at the last minute and the last second, we were able to get a deal done. Uh, but it was something that uh, I, you know, again, it, it was kind of I wanted to see the journey and the dream of getting to the World Series to the end. And then every year when you didn't get there, you're like, hey, let's go next year. Hopefully we get there next year. And then, uh, you know, we got to the playoffs. We changed the culture there, um, you know, until and and so we finally got to the World Series. But uh, I never really I never wanted to leave Houston. Uh, I love Houston. I still live in Houston, work there with the club now. And, um, but it's just something that it's hard to do. Business is business. Money is money. And, uh, you know, players move around a lot. Beach, there's so many things that uh, you have to chronicle with that career and especially a Hall of Fame career. But I think for our listeners, uh, understanding how you pick your representative and somebody that is going to be lockstep with your career, because that's what your vision was, is, how long can I stay in that same uniform, which is a challenge in this day and age um, for you uh, choosing Barry Axelrod and how that all went down? How did that uh, really uh, come to fruition? I mean, Barry, gosh, we were and I've known Barry for over 30 something years and, and we were together probably 18 of the 20 years is what it was. And, um, you know, I, I found Barry through the clubhouse guy. Uh, Dennis Laborio was one of my best friends and had mentioned Barry. Uh, Mark Bailey had mentioned him. Rick Sutcliffe had him. And so I had the opportunity to talk to him and, and talk to those guys about Barry. And then after they told me a lot about Barry, I mean, I had the opportunity to meet with Barry. Uh, and then we, you know, committed a, a relationship that uh, goes to today. I mean, he's one of my best friends. And, you know, being an agent is one thing. You know, players got to go play. You got to go do what you got to do. But I think sometimes people lose sight of the fact that it's a people business and you don't necessarily have to be a jerk to get your client mm -hmm. money. I mean, your client is going to go out there and do his thing and then you got to do the rest to make sure he gets it. But yet again, I always felt like, you know, if, if, uh, especially now being on the front office side, like if somebody's agent calls, you want the GM to pick up the phone call, you know, you don't want them to right. say, Hey, the message, I'll call you back, you know, and Barry's one of those guys that basically the GM would go right through and then they would talk and then they'd have a dialogue. I mean, you can go back to your days with Kevin Towers. God bless him. Love the man to death. And Kevin was an unbelievable uh, GM. And uh, but, you know, it, there's the business side of it. And then there's the relationship side of it as far as, you know, your friendship. And, you know, like you can get you can do both. And Barry has got a special trait of being able to to, you know, uses people skills, what he's got really well, and then his business side of it in order to get his clients paid and not being a, I don't, you know, not being a jerk and trying to get it done. You know, from, from my point of view, thank you, Craig, for all that. And, but from my point of view, um, I don't know if we knew it at the time, but in retrospect, I can say that I think Craig and I were a perfect match because of his desire to stay with one team. I can remember early in our relationship, we were talking and Craig said something like, uh, you know how when you look at somebody's baseball card and you see on the back, 
how they're with the same team for all those years. And it looks so clean and neat. That's how I want my baseball card to be. And I just, I remember that. And I was always of the philosophy that, uh, you know, of course you want to get your, as an agent, you want to get your client as much money as you can. But I thought more important with that than that was to make them comfortable and therefore have a best chance for success. And Craig made it known and I admire it greatly. And I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that I had a part in pulling it off to keep him with the same team uh, for his entire career, which is virtually unheard of uh, anymore. And uh, we went through some, like, we'll eventually talk about the, the free agency situation. We went through some trials and tribulations. Uh, it wasn't always easy, but um, the end result is there. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of it along, along with Craig. So our listeners have frame of reference. I want to make sure I get this right. Craig played in the big leagues from 1988 until 2007. Barry, you guys got together in 1990? 90 or 91. Okay. Craig, let's turn the clock back. As we mentioned, you were drafted in 1987 in the first round by the Houston Astros. You break into the big leagues, 1988, and you play till 2007. So in 1988, in June... You get the call. Walk us through, if you would, who told you, how you found out, and how that whole story developed. The uh, No, it was kind of cool because, um, um, you know, my mom and dad were divorced, uh, you know, when I left uh, to go play my professional career. So my mom made it a trip to come out to Tucson, and um, that's where our AAA club was. And uh, so we got her some seats right next to the, uh, the dugout. And um, I was playing left field that day. Um, and, uh, I don't know why, but I was out in left field. And then, uh, I remember the, the manager was Bob Didier. Um, and he told my mom, Hey, I just want to let you know something that your son's going to get called up to the big leagues after this game. <laughs> so he told my mom before I knew, and then it actually, you know, my mom, I saw my mom after the game, gave her a hug. And then I said, let me go shower. I'll see you after the game. So anyway, you know, you go into the locker room and then the manager calls in your office. So you're either getting sent down, getting traded or getting called up. So it's one of the three. So, and I got the best that he said, Hey, listen, man, you're going to the big leagues and uh, we're going to put you on a red eye and uh, we're going to fly into Houston. They got a day game tomorrow. <laughs> it's like, and then, so obviously, you know, getting the call, you know, getting, getting called up is one thing. Uh, but, you know, obviously to be able to enjoy that moment with my mom, uh, God bless her. She's no longer here anymore. And, and she loved, uh, she loved baseball. And uh, so to be able to have that moment with her was really cool. Greg, what about your dad? How did you let your dad know he wasn't in Tucson? So how did yeah, that no, come I about? Reach out to him. He was still an air traffic controller. I mean, cell phones weren't like they are nowadays. <laughs> so uh, I left him a message at his house and then I uh, had the opportunity to call him uh, later on. And then he eventually made it to Houston uh, I think it was uh, a week later or so. Well, take us through that, uh, Craig. You, 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 you take the red eye flight. You have the day game the next day. Um, did you find out that you were in the lineup? How did that go down when you went into the locker room? Well, you know, you get into the locker room, uh, you come right from the airport and you go right to the locker room. And then uh, Dennis Laborio, like I said before, he was the equipment guy. He's one of my best friends and God bless him. He's no longer here either. Um, and uh, he, uh, he said, there's a little bunk room in the back. So, uh, you know, you know, go get a couple hours sleep back there and then we'll come get you around nine o'clock or whatever. And so you go, it's kind of like a kid at Christmas, Christmas, Christmas Eve, you know, what I mean? like, <laughs> like, like I'm in the big leagues. I'm 22 years old. 
I got Nolan Ryan is going to be dressing next to me over here. Like all of a sudden, like I'm going to try to go to sleep for a couple hours. So anyway, I fake sleeping. Uh, the manager called me in his office. He goes, Hey kid, I know you got in late. You know, can you play? I'm like, dude, I'm 22 years old. Let's go. <laughs> I don't need any sleep. Right. So went out and, uh, uh, I played, uh, played the play that day. I didn't get a hit or whatever, but, uh, I remember I threw, uh, Jose Uribe out, I think was trying to steal. And, uh, I think we won the game, but yeah, it was, it was a moment that you never forget. Craig, when you walk in that locker room, and obviously you're you're fake sleeping, but uh, I think uh, it, it always resonates with me. Those jerseys around the locker room. Uh, what was that first impression when you saw Biggio on, on the back part of that jersey? Well, as you know, I mean, it's something that you dream about. You know, what I mean, there's a lot of uniforms that you've put on, and you know, they're you know maybe an A ball, double AA, A, triple A college, or wherever you're at, and then you go to the spring training, and you're in spring training, big league camp, but you're not in the big leagues yet, and then all of a sudden to have you know, your name and you've got a, a Nolan Ryan, a Mike Scott, a Billy Doran, a Buddy Bell. Okay. He was like 42, 43. I don't even know how old he was. He was awesome teammate. Um, you know, and then you just look around the locker room and you're like, whoa, I'm not going to talk a lot around here. <laughs> yeah. Back in the day, it wasn't let the kids play or let the kids speak. So you walk in that locker room uh, and you mentioned Buddy Bell, you mentioned a bunch of names. Who was the most influential uh, to you that basically took you under their wing and, and uh, showed you the ropes? You know, you know, Billy Doran was great, you know, getting the opportunity, obviously see Nolan Ryan prepare for the, his starts and catch him, Mike Scott, all the guys in the bullpen. You got to remember I was a catcher. So, I mean, you, you know, you, you got different personalities and different people you got to learn. Um, but you, you know, you just had the opportunity you know, and mentioning those guys to 22 years old, you get the opportunity to watch them and they have a good game or a bad game and you watch how they handle the media and the, the way they handle people day in and day out and the way that they handle, you know, just everything, the way that it goes to being a professional. And I owe myself and Barry, and I've told Barry this before, and I've told many other people before, I am so um, indebted to, um, you know, the players that I broke in with because of the fact of the matter is that I was 22. The next closest guy to me was 32. So there's a generational gap in between 10 years of like, wow, I just stepped, what, what am I, what did I step into? And I just learned from those guys. And that was three of the great before. And then we, we revamped the whole team in 91 or 92, whatever year it was. But I mean, I had the opportunity to be around those guys for two and a half years and watch those guys prepare. And you know it yourself, you know, like you watch these guys prepare, you watch how they handle themselves. You watch Tony Gwynn do his thing, how Tony Gwynn would take extra batting practice or do the extra little things to make him be so great. And when you're a younger player, having the opportunity to watch these guys do that, that was pretty special. You know, Craig, you mentioned revamping the team after a couple of years, part of that revamp. And one of the first things that I encountered with you was your position change. Um, and from my point of view, you're, you make the all-star team for the first time as a catcher and they come to you and say, oh, you know, that's nice, but we want to move you to second base. Uh, I, I recall from my point of view saying, wait, if you're going to do that, we need a little more security. And we asked for a two-year deal and they complied and, and took care of that security. But tell us how that position change went down from your point of view. 
Well, I mean, again, you're, you're talking about things we're speculated, um, you know, because you can run. He's not always going to stay behind a plate. He's going to do the, you know, we don't want to lose his speed. That's kind of one of his main assets that he has. Um, I did have a good arm when I was younger. Uh, until as time goes on, it doesn't get as, as good. It gets beat up a little bit. But I think it was just kind of was speculated. And then it was at that stage where Billy Doran was older, was going to become a free agent. And then the club was like, all right, if we're going to do this, we got to do this now. And um, I'm not going to say it didn't go over, you know, the switch went as well as it could go. And I had Matt Galante, who was, you know, he's like a father figure to me, who I, I mean, the hours that we spent, and I'm going to be honest, we went from 7 a.m. to 8.30, and we go in at spring training and, and towel off and then go back out and do the regular stuff with the team, grab a quick sandwich, and then we go get more work done on the backfield, then we dry off and then go play the game. And then when the game is over, we go back to this turf field and do it all over again. So the transition itself was really hard. But in the beginning, it was, you know, the decision was like, man, this is kind of like, this is like, it's never been done before. Like it could go really well. It could not go well, or it could go really bad. And, you know, we always were positive about it. And we were like, listen, if we're going to make this work, we're going to make it work and be the best second baseman we can be. And that was the mindset on it. And then um, we went out there and did it, but it wasn't, it, you know, it was, it was a lot of work that went into it. When you go through that type of process, I would imagine, I mean, you you may have some self-doubt. The coaches are trying their best to probably alleviate that, but even teammates are going, I, I, I don't know if we can do this. I don't know if we can feel a level of trust. What was your vibe going through it? Did you have any doubt? Could you feel any uh, any questioning around you, or did you feel you had complete support? Well, I had complete support of my teammates and everything like that. And, and um, you know, these things happen in baseball uh, a lot of different times. I'm not going to say actually going from catcher to second base, because that's really, you know, unheard of. Um, but again, it was kind of like, you know, if we're going to do this, we're going to become the best possible second baseman that I can become, whatever that's going to be. So we're going to go out and we're going to put the amount of time in that we can and the work in that we can. And then um, just, tr like I said, just try to become the best possible second baseman you can be. My teammates have my support, have my back from the standpoint they know they knew I wasn't sitting in the clubhouse drinking coffee. They, they saw me, you know, coming in at seven o'clock in the morning and getting work done and then going back out again and going back out again and again. And then you, I involved my other teammates too. So like, you know, then you're working with the shortstops, the third basements, the first basements and the different angles and different. So the conversation is there. Um, but, uh, you know, eventually it all worked out and, you know, the rest was history, but it was a lot of work and a lot of, like you were saying though, it was, it, you know, if it didn't work, what were we going to do? Okay. Yeah. What was the backup plan, well, we, by the way? We didn't think about that. We just kind of <laughs> said, we're going to make this work. Uh, and then we did, I actually, I used the negativity because, um, there's probably 90, 90% of the people said, this is never going to work. Guys have gone from catcher to first base, catcher to third base, catcher to left field or right field, but they've never gone like up the middle. Like if you're going to build a team, you're building up the middle. And they're like, you guys think you can take a kid and go from catcher to second. Um, so I use the negativity to be my driving force to try to prove people wrong uh, and become the best possible second baseman, whatever that was going to be. Peach, I think it's interesting uh, because you, you, you mentioned Matt Galante. I think every organization has their uh, infield instructor that really dives in and puts those finishing touches on you. Uh, you have to have that personality to take on that challenge, which I think 
buying into your personalities, not really uh, taking it to another level. We all know you, you love taking on those challenges. Um, let's talk about the mechanics of second base because I've heard this before, never played the position. But when you're turning a double play, especially the slide rule now, uh, you didn't have that slide rule back in the day. Um, the challenges were when you're taking that throw from whether third base or shortstop to turn the double play, your back is to that runner. Was that one of those things that was hard to get past? Or how did you uh, take on to those challenges? Well, honestly, I mean, that was, um, you know, being a catcher, you always had a blind side too. Whenever you're taking a throw from the right fielder, you you, you don't really see that guy. So you're, you're vulnerable, you know, on that play. And it's very similar to the double play ball. And, you know, the double play ball is really like, there's the right way to do it. And then there's the way to, there's the wrong mm-hmm. way. And the right way to do it is kind of reading the ball and then going, you know, like I have three screws on my knee from a, uh, um, a takeout at second base. Today's game, they don't do that anymore. There's, you watch guys turn a double play ball nowadays. I mean, they would be in the hospital back in the day. Right. You can't, you know, but that's just the way the rules are nowadays. So anyway, you know, but it was kind of learning how the feeds are, the throws are, and uh, and and then let the throw dictate how you're going to turn it. But that really wasn't the, the hard part. That wasn't the hardest part for me. The hardest part of second base was the mental side of it. Like, like you got to remember, I was pretty much a catcher my whole life. So like every situation, every ball that was hit, man on first, man on first and second, bases loaded, fast runner at the plate, slow runner at the plate. Like when a ball was hit, when I was a catcher, I knew where everybody had to go. So now all of a sudden you're standing out there on the field and you don't have shin guards on anymore. You don't have a mask on anymore. And there's a guy on first and there's a slow runner at the plate. You got to know where to go. So for me, the hard part was thinking about like every situation that was going through my mind. You got Deion Sanders at first base that can turn a normal man as a double. He's going to turn it into a triple. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like you, you have to think in your mind of every situation because I didn't want to be like, you know, the fans sitting in the stands going, something doesn't look right there. Somebody's out of position. You know what I mean? They couldn't even see another game and go, that's not right. Right. And I didn't want to be that. So that, the physical side of it, the double plays and, and, and all that stuff was one thing, but the aspect of like knowing where you had to be on every play, that took me probably a good year and a half until I was able just to go out and relax and play the game. You know, what's cool. I mean, we've read article after article and they wanted to keep your bat uh, in the lineup, keep you healthy, which was part of the reason, right. To, to move you out from behind the plate. Um, but before you ever make that move, when we talked about the fact that you broke in in 1988 and you got your first hit, uh, do you remember that? Because it came against the Dodgers and it was special for a couple of reasons, but let's first talk about the hit. Do you remember it? Oh yeah. It was a line drive up the middle up off Earl Hershiser, who, I mean, he was the man back in, <laughs> he was, he was about as filthy as you could get. And don't ask me for whatever reason, I wore him out. I, <laughs> nice. I never him. I, they got to be over 400. And I don't know why throughout my career, but for some reason, I got my first hit off him and I kept getting the hits off him every time I faced him. Oh, well, you know what? I, I bring up a couple of reasons why that's special to those of us who are fans of yours. And that is, yeah, you got the hit off Hershiser, but the guy you were catching that day, if you remember, was Nolan Ryan. Right. So here you are as a kid, 22 years old, you're facing Oral Hershiser, you're catching Nolan Ryan, you're playing on a veteran team. 
I you got to take me in that pregame meeting with Nolan Ryan. What is that? What is that like between Nolan Ryan and a twenty-two-year-old piss pot catcher? <laughs> Pretty much, it's like okay. So first of all, like being twenty-two years old, I never got caught up with the name game. Even though you look at the nameplates and you go, "Damn!" Like you know, there's Nolan yeah. Ryan, there's Buddy Bell. There's all, like if I got caught up in the name game, I I would have never been able to play. So I just, I tried to treat Noel Ryan like he's everybody else, but it was kind of like, it's so hard to do. But, you know, basically, you know, Nolan and all the older guys, it was like, I'm going to put down a one. And then if you shake, I'm going <laughs> to shake, I'll do the change up. And, you know, until I, I get there and, and pretty much it was, uh, you know, those older guys were great for them. For me, it was really more learning you know, um, where they wanted you to set up, where they wanted you to set up. Oh, oh, where do they want you to set up? Oh, two, where did you set up? One, one, you know, when you want, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, once you get the pitch call and all that other stuff, then, but then it's the location. Cause a lot of times, you know, there's more that goes on than just a you know, pitcher throwing the ball. Some pitchers throw to your shin guards, some pitchers throw to your shoulders. Some pitchers want you to move outside, you know what I mean? And then they're going to, you know what I mean? So there's a little bit more, um, involved than actually just putting a finger down and setting up and going from there. So what, what did Nolan want from you? He wanted me to block his curveball. Uh-huh. <laughs> so he could drop that hammer and he could, he had a nasty change up too. And what helped me get to the big leagues is that we had two older catchers. It was Mark Bailey, who actually was one of Barry's clients. And then um, Alan Ashby. So I went to big league camp and I was good at that. I could block balls. I mean, I was small, agile. I could move. Um, and Nolan, I was supposed to go to double A. And then Nolan and these guys and the coaching staff were like, just put him in triple A, man. Let's push him. Let's see what he can do. And then that's kind of what Nolan's biggest thing was, is really, you know, throwing that curveball and being able to block it. And, uh, and that was kind of one of the things that really helped me get to the big leagues and really helped me with him. It was really just as long as he can snap that off, you can block it. We were good. Hmm. Beige, what do you remember about uh, your first home run? Because that's a moment I think you'll never forget. Gosh, I got to try to remember that. Oh, that was a great one. So the uh, the first home run, I'm thinking, um, I got 80 bats in the month of August. And I'm like, bench boy. I'm like, <laughs> managers is older team. He's managing for his job. The heck with the kid. I'm not, he's hitting 214. <laughs> I'm not writing his name in the lineup. So I sat in the, I sat in the bullpen and uh, I, I learned a lot. I mean, the conversations that you have with Dave Smith, God bless him, San Diego guy out there was great closure. We had Larry Anderson, Danny Darrow and Juan Augusto. So having the opportunity to talk to those guys was one thing. Then all of a sudden you get an opportunity. Hey kid, get a bat. You're going to go hit off a of goose gossage. Like, okay, cool, man. I, I know goose, man. I, you know, I watched them on TV. I'm a New York kid, man. I got to go up there and I'm ready to hit. And then he throws me a heater. I was up high and uh, I think it hits the glove. And then I swing and I'm like, you better get it going a little quicker than that. <laughs> Another heater. And I hit a uh, Wrigley Field homer, a line drive in the left center. And then as I hit, I was like, damn, I should hit a homer off a of goose gossage, man. I was a kid. <laughs> I was a kid. And then I hit second and the ball came flying by me because <laughs> they threw it in from the outfielder. I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> I did a homer off a goose and I'm getting the ball back. <laughs> did you do you start getting it from your buddies, everybody in New York and, and giving you the grief? No, no, they were like, man, you hit a homer off a goose. This is when he was in Chicago. So it was like, man, you know, because they're all Yankee fans back here. So it was kind of like, it was great. 
Hey, when you're living this life, uh, and it's easy now for us to look back and pull out like little snapshots of this, but are you aware of um, the magnitude of some of these events as you're living them in real time in those think, moments? You know, that's a, that's a really good question. I think, you know, to, to, to go back to when you're 22, 23, 24, I think that you think this is going to last forever and it doesn't last forever, but you just try to, you're trying to live for the next year and then live for the next year after that. And then once you hit, you know, seven, eight years, you know who you are. Teams know who you are. You have security from that standpoint. And I think you start to really enjoy things more and more. And the things that you see in the field, you enjoy more. You enjoy more. Like, I never enjoyed getting no hit. It only happened once. But it was fun to actually be part of a no-hitter. You know what I mean? When Daryl Kyle threw it. And um, so, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, as you get older, you're, you appreciate the game. I don't say you appreciate it more. You just see it differently. You know what I mean? Like somebody told me one time, if you read a book when you're 20, you read it when you're the same book and you read it when you're 30, 40 and 50, you're going to view it differently because you're at different levels of your life. And that's kind of the same way in baseball where you're kind of like, you know, when you're 20, you're just, you know, like the young dog and ready to go. And then you start chilling out and you enjoy it. And, and uh, as you get older and you, you enjoy the game more, and then, you know, I was lucky to play it in my 40s. So, you know, when you play into your 40s, you know, you appreciate the young kid and what they're able to do and, and what, players can do on a field. So, I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, I've been blessed from the standpoint that I think you look at it uh, through a different eyeglass at the different ages that you're at. Yeah, Beige, I, I mean, you go through your career and I think a lot of people uh, don't realize that um, sometimes you have to settle in and feel like you're a big leaguer and then you just go. And, and, the, and the confidence that you have already developed through your life, you just become a big leaguer, you settle in and it's about winning. Uh, but you do that in a very good form and you make the position change, but you also uh, become a seven time all-star. Um, and the reason why I say that that's got to be a feather in your cap for all the work that you put in. What was that like? Does one resonate uh, more than the other when you went to seven all-stars? I think I took it all, you know, I, I enjoyed, I enjoyed all of them. I mean, I, you know, again, it's a tremendous honor, as you know, you know, to be able to go to an all-star game and represent your team, uh, hopefully you got some teammates to come with you and to be able to go and, and represent, you know, your, your team and then your organization and your fan base. I mean, they were all great. They're all fun. I mean, when you get that many studs in that, and disregard yourself, cause you don't look at yourself that way, but when you look <laughs> at Mark McGuire and Barry Bonds and, you know, you look at all these guys, these dudes, like just for that year is like, so it was fun. And whenever we went, we didn't have the Lear jets back then. So it was always a, it was hard you had to get on a plane and go and you're tired and you knew it was going to be a two days of getting worn out and this and that, but it was so much fun. It was such an honor to go. And then you get an opportunity, you know, like, like, you know, when you're a little kid, you watch the all-star game, you go, man, I want to be great. Make a little league all-star game team, you know, and then you're playing in the big leagues in an all-star game. And uh, so we, we would take as many family members as we could get. And uh, we enjoyed every single one of them. You know, Craig, um, after all, or during all this success, uh, being a seven-time All-Star, um, in the middle of that, you become a free agent. And uh, 95, and you, you, you timed it beautifully. You hit 302, you 22 home runs, a lot of stolen bases, and you were um, probably one of the two or three premier free agents on the market. You had a lot of people coming at you at that time. Uh, a lot of teams coming at you and we had some experiences in several places where we met with 
We met with Tony LaRusse and Walt Jockety from the Cardinals. We met with John Moores and Kevin Towers from the Padres, Bob Gebhardt uh, from the Rockies. But that was a grueling experience for the two of us and especially for you. So can you take us through that and talk about how that went? Well, the free, like we were talking about earlier about being loyal uh, to a city and an organization and, 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 you know, I, I never wanted to leave, but as you know, as a player, sometimes like, listen, I, I don't want to go, but I mean, if you're going to make me go, then I don't have a choice. So Barry and I tried to play this out as long as we could until it's a little bit different than like you want to have your free agency done by early December, late November, early December. Now it goes into like during spring training at times now, sometimes some players, but yet it was one of those situations where you didn't want to leave fan base. Didn't want you to leave. Houston wasn't calling. And we were like, so I, one day I told my wife, I said, I, I got to make my mind up and um, I'm a Catholic kid or whatever. And I, I said, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to go, I'm going to go to a church. And I sat in this church for five hours. I literally just four to five hours. The lights were off. It was dark. I just sat in there and you start spinning everything through your mind and going, I don't want to leave, but I, I don't have a choice. I don't want to leave. And so then I, I, I left the church and I told my wife what I was going to do. And then um, I told Barry, I said, you know, we, if we don't have a choice, um, we got to go and we're, we're going to move. And, and uh, so I left the church to call Barry and said, okay, let's, uh, we got to go to plan B and uh, let's see what happens. And then Barry could probably answer the question better than I can. What happened after that? Well, I, I, I can tell you from my point of view, I'm, I'm looking for Craig because as he said, back in the day, most free agency was over by the winter meetings or you would finish it up there, which was early December. Now it goes on forever, but we were getting criticized for taking so long. What's taking so long? Come on, make a decision. And as he said, the Astros had pretty much almost invited him to go out and take a look around. And that's not what, what he wanted to hear as a loyal player, but we did. And then it became enticing because they were offering a lot of money. Uh, as it turns out, Craig ended up signing back in Houston for less money than he could have gotten elsewhere. But I, during that five hour period, I got, I got teams calling me. I got writers calling me going, when are you guys going to make a decision? I go, I can't find Craig. I'm trying to call him. <laughs> <laughs> He's in church making his decision. And, and he finally decided, you know, Houston's what we want. And uh, uh, to Craig's credit, on more than one occasion, he's apologized to me saying, I know I'm costing you money, but I need to stay in Houston. That's what I want to do. And uh, that, that makes me very proud. I'm I was happy about the result finally. And Craig, I mean, the, the re reality is your loyalty really trumped all that. Uh, I think an interesting dynamic, and, and you mentioned it, your wife, Patty, uh, having the ability to have that conversation, um, it, how do you make that? How do you make that decision? Is it uh, comfort um, over the price, or what was that for you? And talking it with your wife. Well, you know, we're going to have a nice lifestyle back in the day. You know, what I mean, the numbers are different now than they were then. And basically, listen, I mean, um, I didn't have a lot growing up. Okay, I didn't. I wasn't a rich kid. I wasn't a poor kid. But I was didn't really have a. You know, I mean, we made best of what we had, right? So then, you know, you get an opportunity to live this dream and go about, you know, living the dream and doing all this stuff. And then you're like, you know, listen, I, I, I'm not, we don't 
Barry knows we, we don't kind of live over live our means. You know what I mean? Like we're, we're good with like, we can, my credit card works and this and that. And what ends up happening is like, like, you know, my wife's in on the conversation and she's just like, listen, I respect you, honey, whatever you're going to do, whatever you feel is right for us and the family, then we're going to support you on it. And I think that's, you know, we've been married 31 years. And I think the reason why we're married 31 years is she let me go do my thing. Okay. And go play. And then she took care of the family and we really didn't have any problems. And she never really dove into the business side of it and that aspect of it from like, I trust you, I love you. And then you, we're gonna be able to, we're gonna make this work on you've been doing great. And whatever you decide to do and you feel is right, then we're gonna support you on it. And then that's what we're gonna do. But, you know, she didn't wanna leave Houston either, but it was still, you know, at the time it was like, if we don't have a choice, we don't have a choice. So let's, we gotta find a, a good opportunity to go what's gonna be the next chapter in our life. And then at the last minute, the last day, it all worked out. Dwayne, you know, I think you, you ask a really insightful question about the role of the wife. Uh, as I recall it, there were moments when it wasn't all compatible. I felt like uh, a referee a couple of times when Patty had her opinions. I, I love Patty. She's one of my favorite people on earth. But there, there were some, uh, there were some differences of opinions during the, the course of all this, but uh, they are, uh, the, the great thing about Craig and Patty is they were able to talk it out, as Craig said, and Patty's said, you know, your decision, you go do it. And it's turned out fairly well so far. So isn't that what they say, though, about a, a, a good arrangement, whether it's a marriage or, or with a business partner or an agent, you got to have somebody challenging you to be a critical thinker. You, you want to have that, don't you, Craig, where you're going, is, am I seeing this clearly? And you want that feedback, don't you? hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, yeah. You don't want anybody like, Oh, whatever you say, whatever you say, honey, you know, yeah, you're the best right now in this house. <laughs> like, yet again, you, you got to be able to work your way through it. And then at the end of the day, when the decision's made, you're all going to go down the same path together. So there's no reason to, you know, you try to any negotiation, you work it out. And, and this is a complicated life, man. People, you know, it's, think it's so easy. You know um, I think, you know, one of the hardest things to do is, is really staying with the team for 20 years. That's hard to do. You look at what Tony Gwynn did, you know, George Brett did, you know, Don Mattingly before he got hurt. It's hard to stay with a team, uh, Cal Ripken, you know, throughout your career. I mean, there's, you know, it's a give and take relationship with both sides. And sometimes you're like, it's going to work. And sometimes it's not going to work. But yet again, you know, in your household, um, it's got to work. You know what I mean? And I think that uh, uh, a lot, I think what happens with a lot of players um, a lot of times is that they think the grass is always greener on the other side and, and ask any old baseball player. They'll tell you that all the time. They always think the grass is greener. Then they get over there and they're like, why did I leave? Mm. Hell, I had it so good. All right. So I took a little less, but you're happy. Your kids are happy. You know what I mean? Who cares? You know, you're still going to have the credit cards going to work. <laughs> That's all yeah. Right? I love it, Beach, because uh, from my perspective, a, a player in the game that was just uh, thrilled to put a uniform on, uh, I always marveled on longevity and also uh, being able to be loyal. And that those are two words that I think uh, resonate when I think of Craig Biggio and also the iconic names that you mentioned. Um, I, I'd love to do this because you settle into your career and we talk about the finances, the contracts, all that stuff. You're identified by winning and also your teammates. And I think that is something that's really uh, fun for this podcast to hear uh, the aspects of it. You're connected and we'll touch on your Hall of Fame career. 
uh, your Hall of Fame and enshrinement. Um, but you're connected with with one of the best, and this is Jeff Bagwell. Uh, we'll get into the Killer Bees, but Jeff Bagwell and you are are lockstep in the Astros uniform. Uh, speak to uh, your relationship with Jeff. Well, I mean, it's you know we were two East Coast kids that you know we didn't know anything about Texas. I got there a little earlier than he did, but yet he was a Boston Red Sox and was like East Coast kid. He's going to be a Sox, Carl Yastrzemski, Jim Rice, and all the boys. You know, then all of a sudden, you know, 1989 or. 90, whatever year it was, all of a sudden he becomes a Red Sox and he comes to the Astros. And he's like, damn, I was going to live my dream. My father was a Red Sox fan and this and that. And then all of a sudden, you know, we make the trade and, you know, we got a good little power hitter guy that, you know, he didn't have a lot of power as much then because he played in a big ballpark. Um, and then he's a third baseman. And then we already have a third baseman <laughs> that's already here in our organization named Ken Caminetti, who won an MVP out there in San Diego. When you yeah. And, uh, well, he's not better than him. And then like, Okay, Yogi Berra goes, well, he hits too good, and he's not going to play third, then we'll put him at first. So Baggy learns how to play first base in two weeks. So he takes his third baseman glove, you give him the taco, he goes over to first base. And then, you know, 14 years, uh, you know, I couldn't have picked a better guy to play with teammate-wise on and off the field. And, and uh, I mean, he knew me as well as I knew anybody and I knew him as well as we knew anybody. I think that's what really made us really work unbelievable together. I set the table. He drove me in, you know what I mean? It was kind of like, and we won a lot of games that way. And then obviously before he hurt his shoulder on the right side of the field, I mean, we, we had a lot of fun over there, man. He was good. He was great. You know, people remember a little bit at the end with a shoulder and everything defensively with the glove and the way that he can move and, so to be next to him side by side for whatever it was, I think we played 15 years, but we were side by side for a dozen. That was a lot of fun over there. So, um, and then when he finally got in the Hall of Fame, you know, for the, for us two uh, to go in together was something that we'll never forget. And the one thing that we always talked about was that, you know, we're going to go play, we're going to do our thing, but we want to bring a championship to Houston. So we always talked about the World Series. We want to win a World Series. We want to win a World Series. We're not a big market. Like when you guys played in San Diego, you're not a big market, but you got to get a lot of things right. You know what I mean? So for he and I, we got to the playoffs that didn't go well. We got the playoffs that didn't go well. And then it started to go well. And then we got to the World Series. That was the accumulation of like, we're finally letting the air out and going, man, we're going to the World Series. You know what I mean? Like some guys get an opportunity to go a lot. Okay. But I got to go one time as a player. And it was one of the greatest things that I ever had an opportunity to do because it was the same thing. It takes you back to your, your childhood days, you know what I mean? Where you're just like a little kid going to the World Series. And for Baggy and I to do that together, we just that's all we wanted to do. And we want and we changed the culture there in Houston. And we, we take a lot of pride in that. And, you know, we respected our teammates. And uh, so to be in the Hall of Fame with them together it was is really special. You know, I, one of the things that I recall about that relationship is, Craig, when you got your 3,000th hit, of course, there's a celebration on the field. Patty comes down. Um, the kids are there, of course, on the field, you know, hugs. And all of a sudden, you're looking. You're looking for somebody. And you're looking for Jeff, who uh, uncharacteristically came down. That's, that's not his – that's not really his style to have the – the the limelight but uncharacteristically he came down and you called him onto the field to be with you that was uh to me that was uh the the greatest indication of the the 
the closeness you guys had and what it had been for you guys to be teammates. Well, that was, you know, you know, you were there. That was, you know, 3000 hits is pretty special. And uh, to be able to give it to the city, like we were able to do at the end was, 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 was like my way saying, thank you to you fans for being nice to us or for Baggy and I, you know, like, you know, there's a lot of stuff going on and then Gar was yelling. And then I'm like, well, what? And then he's yelling, there's Baggy. And I'm like, you know, he didn't want to come out to the field and, you know, the game was taken away from him. And so we really didn't have an opportunity to walk off the field together. And he said, what? I said, come here. And then I said, so I go, we're going, he and I had this thing, you know, like, you know, when we're playing the game, we're between the white lines. And when the game is over, we don't step back over the white line until the game starts the next day. So I said, come on. He goes, what? I go, let's go. We got to go between the lines one more time. Let's go. This is good. This is, this, I don't care what the fine's going to be. You're in street clothes. I don't care. Let's just go. <laughs> I'll take care of the fine. Let's just go do it for the fans one more time. And uh, it's a moment that I'll never forget. Cause I mean, we, you know, we, you know, it's 14, 15 years. You've been through a lot of things together, man, on the field, you know, good, bad, ugly work, sweat injuries. And, and then be able to have that moment have him come out and pull him out and make him do something that he'd want to do. I enjoy that more than. <laughs> uh, Beige, I mean, you guys are the unselfish guys. And for our listeners, uh, the people don't know, uh, that right side of the infield was represented by Barry. Uh, he also represented Jeff Bagwell. So that's the reason why he was there too, uh, signifying that moment. You mentioned something that was interesting. And uh, I think a lot of players would love to say, you know what? Um, I got to, to, to leave the game the way I wanted to. Uh, you mentioned that, and that's the reason why I bring it up now. Uh, you got to go off uh, the field against the Atlanta Braves and uh, be the defensive replacement. You come off the field. What was that like? What do you remember about that moment? Uh, you know, it's... it's uh, you know, as you know, it's... it's um, most players have the game taken away from them. So for me, I mean, I had a storybook at the storybook career where, you know, we did our thing, we played. And then at the end, I made my own decision to walk away. So I was good with the fact that like, you know, it's time for me to go home. It's time for me to be a better husband. It's time for me to be a better father. As you know, you know, we're never there for your kids when they're playing little league games and all this other stuff when, you know, they really need you because you're, <laughs> you're playing. So, you know, for me, you know, when you come off the field and obviously with Bobby Cox and the Atlanta Braves, we've got a lot of history together, uh, respectful history together where, you know, you know, every first round we played them. So they sent us home three times. We sent them home. They sent us home three times in the playoffs. We sent them home twice. So we had a lot of respect there amongst each other and to be able to have them be part of that, and then have my kids in the dugout. I was good with going home. I was ready to go home and I was ready to go for that next chapter of my life. I'm not going to tell you, it took me a while to take my uniform off because mm -hmm. I knew, that, you know, and the next time you take these spikes off, I mean, they're off, you know, you're not going to be like going home and go, I changed my mind. I'm going to come back. We're good. It's time to go home. So I guess, you know, having to be able to do it the way that I did it um, and to have all the fans there, and I, and when the game was over, I didn't know what to do. I didn't, I, you know, I didn't really want to do the Cal Ripken thing, but then all the fans weren't leaving. So I kind of had to go around the field and, um, but like I, you know, it was, it, it's a memory in my mind that I'll never forget because, uh, 
you know, I love Houston and the fan base has been so great to me and, and to be able to have that happen, my family, and then go in the next chapter of my life was, was something I'll never forget. I think that's really cool that you get to uh, walk it off, as they say, on your terms, when so many guys don't have that opportunity. So congratulations to you on that and all the memories you have left uh, for this legion of loyal fans. I really find it to be remarkable because I think you guys made an interesting point earlier. How few guys play their entire career, especially one 20 years long with one organization. And then you bring a playoff atmosphere to it. And you bring a world series opportunity for yourself there, as we talked about in 05 against the Sox. Uh, take me through though, that postseason slice of your professional life. Your first time in is in 97, uh, the division series again Atlanta, against Atlanta. As you said, Atlanta kind of got the better of you guys for a while because it ties in, I think, interestingly with Mark's 1998 Padres and Barry kind of straddling the fence there on both sides, Craig. Well, he was in a win-win situa situation anyway because he knew people on both sides. Yeah. He's going to have to have some bad calls and he's going to have some happy calls, you know? <laughs> you know, 97, I think 97 was... It was the playoffs that, I mean, we were just young and we, Atlanta was polished and we just, we thought we were ready for him and we were not ready for him. Um, you know, and then 98, I think we had the best team. Uh, and then Mark, I think we, I think we came across you guys and yeah. right. And Kevin, yeah. you guys had Kevin Brown out there in San Diego, which was like, we were right-handed dominant team. And up until 2017, I thought that was the best team that, the Astros have ever had, even though we didn't go to the world series that year. Um, you know, and then, but you, you, you take bit, bits and pieces of, you know, you know, the playoffs. Uh, but then again, getting the opportunity to finally go to the world series that one year um, was, was like, just took you back to when you were a little kid, like we are going to the world series, you know, you know, some guys that never get a chance to say that, you know, and they were great players in the hall of famers, you know, it wasn't from lack of trying, it just didn't work out. But, you know, the playoffs, you remember different pieces of things that have happened in those games and those series. And uh, it wasn't from lack of effort. I believe a lot of times I, I'm a destiny guy, man. I just things happen why they happen. It's not for us to answer, but they just happen. You think the guy wanted to strike out? You think the guy wanted to throw a wild pitch? You think the, Bill Buckner wanted to have the ball go between his legs? Right. No, it's just destiny happens, man. You just hope it's your destiny and not somebody else's. Beach, I always want to go back to 98, not not because uh, my team won. I think it's oh, one I'm of those <laughs> I think it's one of those series that uh, that it, the, the lead up was so great because we had Kevin Brown on our side. You guys go and acquire the big unit, Randy Johnson. Um, he because he he is 10 and one with you guys leading into the playoffs. And like you said, the most talented probably Astros team, if you look at that roster, you go, oh my gosh. And as an opposition, we were saying the same thing. Uh, don't get us wrong, because it is the big unit. But also, statistically, you had your best year of your career. Um, you were coming in as, as leading the charge. Uh, 50 stolen bases, 50 doubles. You're the second one in baseball history. Um, a guy named Tris Speaker did it in 1912. No big deal, right? Uh, you're doing it. Uh, but I think it's it, it's interesting. You guys have the killer bees. You're going into this series. And I think the listeners don't understand. Um, it was a four-game series. And the first three games were one-run uh, results. So everything was very close. You had the big unit. Um, what do you remember about that series? Because... 
the the winner had to take on the Atlanta Braves that you already had that challenge with. Right. Pretty much. I mean, from what I remember, I mean, you know, you had get we had Kevin Brown game one and game three. We had some off days in between there, which allowed him to come back. Right. So it was kind of like, wow, like how did we get stuck with him on game one and game three? Right. <laughs> we, we had unit when and then you had uh, we had unit go on game one and then he came back for game four but that was against sterling hitchcock yep which was when you're playing the west coast people will forget and this is where both shadows both let me tell you something for the hall of fame voters please oh my god he's one of the greatest managers of all time amazing you don't the players play against each other and then when you play against a bruce bochi team you don't beat him you have to beat the players and that was the great thing about Boach is that he he put all his players in situations to be successful. He was like the Bobby Coxes, man. They were magicians. They were amazing. And but then it was Sterling Hitchcock for game four against Unit. And they're like, and you know, you got a three o'clock day game in San Diego. And everybody's like, well, it's great on the East Coast, if unless you're on the West Coast, because you can't even see the ball in batting practice, right. let alone a game being played. So Sterling did great. Okay. <laughs> I think he had Atlanta again in a three o'clock game in yep. those again later on, and uh, it didn't work out for us. So that's okay. So again, I believe in destiny. It wasn't ours. It was yours. I was happy for Cammy, happy for yourself, you know, in San Diego. So it was great. Uh, that's an interesting aspect. And that's another reason why I wanted to bring it up too. Not the results. It has everything to do with one of your former teammates, Ken Caminetti, our third baseman, uh, 1996 MVP. But uh, this was a situation where uh, it really resonates with you. Your relationship with the late Ken Caminetti. I thought the world of him. He has three beautiful daughters. Um, this was a guy that was a warrior. And on that big stage, he was uh, so great because he loved those challenges. Uh, what was your relationship like with the uh, late Ken Caminetti? Oh, Cammy is, you know, he's one of my best friends, obviously. He's one of my best friends. I've known, you know, his daughter's here right now in New Jersey, spending the week here. So she's uh, uh, my wife and his ex-wife, Nancy, is here. I mean, she's not here, but they're best friends. Um, the relationship that we have is is inseparable. Um, they're beautiful girls. Uh, but my relationship with Cammy is one of my best friends. And, and uh, you know, when, uh, you know, we lost, I mean, we're happy for him. I mean, he has an opportunity to go to the World Series. Um, he's a California kid. Came from he came from California. Went to college in California. So I mean, this, the the storybook for him out there was great. But my relationship with Cammy was, you know, we were, you know, nineteen. He got to the big leagues in '87. I got to the big leagues in '88. And then we just kind of go through the growing pains together until we finally start winning. And then he left, and then came back, and then left, and then, you know, but. As far as your relationships are concerned, Mark, like, you know, it's like, you know, you might put on different uniforms, but you're friends for life. And he was one right. of my best friends. And, and uh, again, he's, uh, you know, uh, I have a ranch. It's it's named Cambo Ranch for Caminetti, Vigio. Uh, you know, I used to hunt with my dad. And then um, uh, he had a ranch that he was on, on a lease. And he asked me uh, to be partners with him on it. And I said, let me bring my kids down. And they loved it. And then the rest was history. But um yeah, Cammy was uh, Cammy was a great, unbelievable third baseman. If anybody wants to know how great of a third baseman Caminetti was, I, I showed a video to a GM the other night. I go, remember when Ken Caminetti play? He did from his butt on the yeah. line. And he goes, uh, kind of. I go, hold on a second. You YouTube Ken Caminetti throw from third base on the line. 
and Sween, was that you? Were you at first? No, that was. Uh, I think what well, might have been Wally Joyner. Scott okay. Living. Scott Livingston. Yeah, Scott Livingston. Yeah, that's but right. He's yeah. laying on the line on his butt, and he throws it to the first baseman sitting on his butt, and he throws a dart like <laughs> just high, and he threw the guy. I don't even remember who hit it, but he threw him out by like two steps. It wasn't even close. It was like you. That's all you have to do is watch that video to show how great that man was at, at what he did defensively. Uh, he was he was Brooks Robinson of our era, and then he finally was able to get a, a gold glove or two at the end. And um, But the thing about Cammy, Cammy, he, he looked like a Harley Davidson Hell's Angel type guy. Yeah. He was the biggest teddy bear in the world. <laughs> you know yourself, like yeah. he, he would give you anything and he didn't care. He just looked mean, but he was, he didn't have a bad bone in his body. You know, the reason I remember it's Scott Livingston is because I've been around him. Sween, I know you've heard him say this, but Livingston will say, yeah, everybody talks about Cam and Eddie on that play. They don't realize the part I played in that play. If, if I hadn't caught that ball, it would have put a hole in my chest. <laughs> That's his line. But uh, in regard to uh, the uh, Craig, you, uh, have provided me with so many opportunities and memories. And one of them in regard to Cammy was uh, when uh, your, your Hall of Fame induction weekend. And th this is just to point out the closeness of the Caminities. Craig's guests of honor, really, besides his family, were Nancy and the three girls. And I can remember being invited on the tour down to the, uh, where they keep everything stored down below. And they showed the girls Cammy's file with all the great things that he had done and then pulled out the bat that he had used to hit home run from each side of the plate one day and then did it again the next day. And they have that as an artifact at the Hall of Fame. And I actually have some pictures of the girls holding the bat. But but along with other memories, I got to say, some of, the, some of the things that stick out to me most were uh, being able to be present with you at a lot of important phone calls. Uh, one of which was I wasn't at the call when you got called to the big leagues because that wasn't a call, of course. But then uh, two, uh, uh, what we thought were going to be calls, being at your home, waiting for the calls from the Hall of Fame in the first two years of your eligibility when they didn't come and the disappointment that we lived through with that. And then the third one where the call came and the excitement that, that came about because of that. I was also able to be present uh, at the call when Cam I was at your house in Houston when Kevin was drafted by the Blue Jays, which was an exciting moment. Uh, but I just want you, th those calls and one more, I want to ask you how they, how they rate with you. Uh, your call to the Hall of Fame, your call to the big leagues, Kevin's call when he was drafted, or Kevin, when he told you he was going to the big leagues, where, how do you rank those calls? I, you know, listen, I mean, I'm part of the greatest team ever assembled as, as far as being a hall of fame member. And, and as you sat in my kitchen, um, you know, one of the, when you're sitting there waiting for a phone call to come and then it doesn't come and you never know if it's going to happen the next year or not, you never know what's going to, whatever's going to happen from that. But then obviously to get that phone call uh, in the third year um, is, is a phone call that you will never, ever forget because you never play the game to get in the Hall of Fame. You play the game. I love the game. It's fun to play the game. I came from a little town in 
Long Island, New York, you know, and, and worked my way up and ended up in Texas and, and did my thing there. And then I got a call to, to be able to go to Cooperstown, you know, and then that call doesn't happen unless, you know, you get the call up in 1988, you know, when you're in AAA, right? But I gotta say, you know, the phone call when my son got drafted was really, and, and, I, and Barry we, and everybody on the Zoom call, we all love our children the same, you know? Um, but then when, when your son gets a phone call that he's gonna get drafted and then he gets drafted in the fifth round, you're like, man, he's got a chance. He's got an opportunity. And then when your son calls you, when you're here and I'm like, he calls us and he says, uh, hey, what are you doing? I go, yeah, we're just sitting on the back porch and we're getting ready to, you know, is there something that you need us to bring you to Lehigh <laughs> whenever the heck we were going to go to watch him play? And he goes, I think you need to, uh, and he goes, no, I don't forget nothing. He goes, I just think you, you need to, uh, you might want to change your uh, point of destination. I go, what are you talking about? He goes, I'm going to the show. So now all of a sudden, like your kid, you know, is trying to do the same thing you did. And then all of a sudden your son gets that phone call. And then the next day, you know, 24 hours later, you're in Toronto watching your son play against the San Diego Padres. And um, I'll never forget that ever. Cause it was, that's what his dreams are. He's got a, in this house here, he's got a, uh, my first all-star game was from the Toronto Blue Jays. It hang, it's been hanging above his bed here for 30 something years. He got drafted by the Blue Jays and then he got an opportunity to go to the big leagues uh, and chase his own dreams down. That to me, that is, I'll never forget it. I mean, cause it's like any, anybody that's a son of a, as a son that's playing, that's trying to get there. And then obviously it's what we did. And then they're getting an opportunity to do it. I'll never forget that call. Beej, take us, take us into that. Uh, the, the first day for your son, Calvin, uh, in the big leagues, uh, you make the trek and you're not going to miss that game. You oh. know how important that is. Um, that perspective to me, and especially the cameras, catching you because this isn't about your moment it's about your son's moment but man let's let's be honest a 20-year career and then here comes your son making that debut uh what was that like for you and emotionally and the day itself well the game couldn't get there quick enough <laughs> you know you're like come on man let's go let's go let's go let's go to bp let's go you know there he is he's got number eight on yogi bear Cav. he's got that number <laughs> <laughs> and then you watch the game and then you're just like okay hopefully he makes all the plays in the field and then you're like please get a hit please get a hit you know don't don't do like an 0 for 30 you know? <laughs> <laughs> dad was 0 for 13 you know like come on we get the kid get a hit he didn't get a hit the first game and then uh it was either the second game or the third game he had a couple of hits so he had a homer which was a bomb yeah bomb bomb and then you're like Hey man, God bless you. Good luck. This is going to be so much fun to watch you play. Speak, speaking of the bombs, uh, he uh, makes his first visit as uh, a visitor to Houston and he's in a Blue Jays uniform. You're in the stands, obviously. And uh, he hits another bomb. What was that reaction like? How'd that feel for you? Well, it's the same thing. I mean, I, you know, people like, you know, you don't stand up for your kid. You don't, I, 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 I'm an internal guy, man. You know, like, you know, you're in a dugout. <laughs> The game's different now. You know what I mean? They got, it, everybody's doing the whole whatever oh, yeah. going on, right? So back in the day, you would have done that. You would have got one in the ear hole, you know? Yeah. You know, you learn that you just, 
I'm an internal guy, man. I'm just, things are going inside and, and I don't care. I, I listen, I still work with the team. I want them to hit four homers against, us, you know what I mean? But as long as, you know, Houston wins, I don't care. He hit does great, but it's like, he hit, he had a couple up there in Toronto against them that year. And then this father's day, he had a homer father's day weekend in Houston this year, he had a home run. So, I mean, you know, it's pretty cool. I mean, and the thing is, like when he plays in Houston, which is cool, is that like the fans, you know, they my, my kids grew up with the fans. You know what I mean? They love them there. You know, they got a couple big, you know, chance. That's awesome. And they usually throw the ball back in when the visitors hit the homer, and they didn't throw his back in. The guy kept it. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> the guy's like, I ain't giving that ball away. <laughs> I was just going to ask you whether it went through your mind that, I'm still a, a consultant and a, a member of this organization. What am I supposed to do here? You know, the, my son just hit a home run against the Astros. Oh, yeah, they don't care. They know. They go, they, <laughs> they go, listen, I want Kevin to go four for four every day as long as we win. Who cares? You know what I mean? It's like somebody's going to have a good day on um, usually on every other team you play. So why not my kid have a good game? And as long as the Astros win, we're good. Quick, more, more nerve-wracking uh Wearing uniform and being in a pressure pack situation or more nerve-wracking sitting in the stands watching your kid? Sitting in the stands watching your kid, one million percent. Really? Even I'm putting you in the World Series against the White Sox, the culmination, the pinnacle of your career. You're telling me sitting in the stands watching Kevin is more stressful than playing in the World Series. You don't control it. I sit in the box. I got a bat in my hand. I control that. I'm sitting in the stands. I don't control anything. It's kind of like... You want to put things back in perspective. Go back to anybody that has children and when they when they're in little league and they're pitching and you're just sitting in the stands going, Oh my god, just he's trying to throw strikes, but he's throwing them to the backstop. He's you know what I mean? You're just kind of like you know, you're going back to like you, you don't control it. You're like you just want them to be successful. That's it. Yeah, Craig, uh, for our listeners, um, those moments uh, resonate and especially your uh, pride for what you're kids have done uh obviously Kevin being in the main stage uh, uh but let's not uh minimize it too you get a important phone call after your third year waiting as you mentioned uh Barry's there to be able to uh you know to hear that phone call what was that like for you do you remember that moment and do you remember the words that came out on the other end of the phone or and and how was that day moving forward uh well the day, well let me let me leave uh I think it was the first year um, they, they tell you to put your phone where it's in a good spot from 12 to one o'clock or whatever it is that um, has good reception. So my phone rings the first year, like 12, 15, it says New York, New York on it. And I'm like going, New York, Hello? Hey, this is so-and-so from some, some I can't talk right now, bro. I'm like, anyway, so the phone call, it's like, you just thought that you were getting a phone call from Cooperstown and then it was uh, an interview. And you're like, oh, right? So anyway, so that doesn't come. And then the next day, next year, you find out that you were like two votes shy. And the only reason why you didn't get in is because they picked up like two or, or five more riders. So the percentages went you had the actual number that you needed, but since you didn't, they had more riders, you're below the curve again. So I'm like, okay, so we missed out by two. All right. And then um, 
you know, and then the third year comes and then you're, you're, you're just like, it's very emotional, obviously. Cause it's like, it's not something that, you know, we didn't play the game for the hall of fame, but now you have an opportunity to be part of the, the greatest team ever. Right. Be part of that fraternity. And, um, um, I remember saying to the guy, this is not a joke, is it? This is real. <laughs> and he goes, no, this is real. It's like, you know, and then the emotions roll and, and then, you know, you making sure that you're, you know, you got to get on a flight and it was like going to an all-star game. Now you got to like hurry up and get out. And, but it was like, you know, for my family to all be part of it, Barry was there, um, you know, to be, you know, you're part of a 1% group of, of put on a big league uniform and, and have the opportunity to play. And now you're part of that team. And um, I'll never forget. It. You know, what I, what I recall about it is that there's that elation and you think, okay, now we pop the champagne and it's going to get a clean. Now it's a whirlwind. They've got to, they're getting picked up in an hour to go to the airport, to get to New York for the, the press conference and everything. And I, I don't remember if you guys were packed before or not, but it was like, you don't want to pack because you're going to offend the baseball gods if you pack. So. <laughs> pack in the bat bag before the game's over. That's right. <laughs> right. So uh, I just remember it being such a whirlwind and everything happening so fast. And with all the, the stuff happening leading up, uh, the developing the speech, uh, getting the, the most important people in that speech, uh, the Dennis Laborios that you talked about, um, uh, all your teammates, uh, that is a daunting task in itself. What do you remember about that process? What do you remember about that day, Craig? Well, I remember that, uh, you know, again, that, uh, you know, when you go up to the hall of fame, they give you the, they, they gave you the lay of the land and what you, the, you know, what's going to happen, what's going to transpire. Um, and then this is what's happened with some people before. And then they tell you that, you know, you don't want to be the guy that sits back down on the chair and go, Oh, I've got to Sweeney. And then I got to get up. <laughs> yeah. No, you're done. They gave you your plaque. It's, you have to go. You have, so, you know, you write a, in the, you know, I'm not, I'm not a big public speaker guy. I don't like to do it. I don't enjoy doing it. You know, stuff like this, I enjoy doing off the cuff and, and, but it's like, okay, let's get my checklist, you know, write it all down get all the people down, you know, and then the hall of fame calls you back and says, well, we wanted it done in 15 minutes. Okay, 15 minutes is a lot of a lot of thank yous to get done in a 15 minute capsule, and then um, you know you you get it all written out and presented to your wife, and she doesn't like this or does like that, and you, you forgot about this, and you got to put the sunshine kids in there, and you're like, okay, yeah, you're right, um, you know, and then you know I got a college grad upstairs at Notre Dame, an MBA from Rice, and he can type it all up, and I'm like, listen, they don't have a teleprompter. <laughs> you know, like the president has, you, you know, I got to be able to see it. You know what I mean? And, and a typical kid, you know, you got a 15, 17 minute speech, whips it out in like 25 minutes. And I'm like, I would have taken me like a week to type all that down, you know? So, and then, uh, and then you just practice it. And that was it. What do you remember about that day, Barry, when, when uh, Craig stood up and, and gave his speech? Um, I had confidence that Craig was going to do a great job. I had actually talked to him beforehand about what he was going to say and make sure you don't forget anybody. You know, I tried to do my part and, and uh, reminding him of, you know, teammates and people like Macalani and Dennis Laborio and, um, and uh, his wife, 
you know, <laughs> make sure you remember her. But I had every confidence he was going to do great, and he did do great. He uh, and it was. Uh, I remember it being hot. It's hot out there at Cooperstown when you're sitting out there in the open air and the sun. But uh, you know, you disregard that. And, uh, what I remember is that John Smoltz in his speech talked about his parents being accordion players and accordion teachers. And Craig, we got back to the hotel and we were going to sit on the veranda and have a beer and cool off. And who sits down next to us but John Smoltz's parents. And Craig has a smart ass brother-in-law who looks at the Smoltz's and said, did you folks bring your your accordions with you? I love polka music. <laughs> That's probably what I remember most. Hey, Swain, but I do remember this. I remember that I said that, hey, listen, because we had four guys. And I said that, look, I was a leadoff guy. Yeah. And I go first because I didn't want to be like, I got to follow that guy who's the politician. <laughs> or you want to follow the guy that was bad. But yet again, I remember after I sat down and then John got up to speak and then unit is sitting right next to me and he's sitting there going, <laughs> <laughs> you're waiting because you're waiting your time, you know? And I'm like, yeah. I want to go up. I want to get it. And they're like, you know what? I can sell that right there. You're good. You go first. <laughs> hey, lead, lead off hitter should lead off. Right. Yeah, yeah, I, sat down and I was like, God, I'm so glad I'm done. You know, Pedro, it didn't matter when he went here. He was really fine. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> <laughs> Greg, you made a passing reference just a minute ago to the Sunshine Kids, uh, and I know how near and dear that organization has been to your heart. Can you mention that? And specifically, I tried to tell Mike this story last night, and I sort of choked up, but specifically talk about Game 3 of the World Series and how that incorporated the Sunshine Kids. Yeah, the Sunshine Kids, I mean, I'm a national spokesman for them, and uh, they, 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 they're, they're children with cancer. Um, and uh, they, I've been involved with them for 35 plus years. And they've been, uh, how I got involved with them was that the Larry Anderson Bagwell uh, trade, um, it started with Joe Sambito uh, in Houston, who was a left-handed pitcher. And he would bring the Sunshine Kids out for a game, bring him out on the field for batting practice, sign some autographs, take some pictures, uh, give him some tickets to go to the games, and then give him some hot dogs and, and do that type of stuff. So then Larry, when Joe left, Larry got involved. And then when Larry got traded, I was like, I had a newspaper route when I was a kid. And uh, there was a family on my route that their son came down with leukemia. And um, uh, the, the, the young man eventually, he lost his life. But I made a promise to the family. I said that if, if I'm ever in a position, I don't know if I'm ever gonna be or not. If I'm ever in a position to give back, I promise you. I will give back. So when Larry left, I was like, well, here's your, you know, here's your opportunity here. And then either, you know, you said you were going to do it. So, so I got involved in back then. And then it's, it's led to this relationship that we've had for, for 35 plus years. And um, the Houston people and the community have been incredible supportive of the kids and the foundation. And uh, there's so many amazing things that we do. But one of the coolest things was um, is when Drayton McLean uh, was the owner of the Astros at the time. We were in the World Series, and it was the first Texas team to ever go to the World Series. So we went. We were in Chicago for the first two, and we lost. And then Drayton had said to me, 
um, there's a boy named uh, Frankie. So when I met this this young man named Frankie, he was five years old, and they told me he was gonna he's got two he's got two weeks to live. So I asked the dad, who was during one of these meet and greets that we have in the field, can I take Frankie into the clubhouse? So I take him in the clubhouse. He's five years old, and we go to my locker, and I go, what do you want? Take whatever you want. Of course, takes the jersey. <laughs> so the okay. kid takes the jersey, and then, um, uh, you know, meet him with all the players, and then he goes and watches the game. And then Frankie – Frankie was the young man that threw out the first pitch of the first Texas World Series ever. And he's been a near and dear friend of my heart. He's been, Jeff Bagwell and I just got in the Houston uh, Hall of Fame. Brad Ausmus did an induction for me. And then Frankie also came up and do it. Frankie's doing amazing. He's in film. Uh, we need to hook him up with Harmon. And uh, he's just, um, you know, he's just, uh, he's a great kid. He's a great friend. And uh, I mean, that was one of the, you know, there's certain things that happen to you on a baseball field. And this happened before a game. And for Frankie to be able to throw out the first pitch in the Hall of Fame, I mean, the first pitch in, the, in a World Series ever to be played in Texas, that was pretty special. What a great story. I, I, I mean, Beach, if people don't understand uh, the stuff that you do on the field resonates. But uh, when you can impact somebody's life like Frankie's and be able to have a moment like that, um, that that puts a stamp on everything, in, in my opinion. Uh, interesting that you have all of these charities that you've done in the Houston area. Um, you're you're continuing to do the stuff with the Houston Astros organization. Uh, what's next for you? What would you like to have uh, happen in in the next few years? You know, I kind of well, let's get through COVID, right? But let's just kind of you know we got this new variant. Just like have everybody be smart about it. I mean, it's still having an impact on, on, on us, on everybody. Right. So let's, let's, let's get through this phase of it. Let's continue to grow the game to what it's growing at. I mean, Mark, you're in the game. You see these players there. Some, what some of these kids can do on a baseball field is, is beyond belief at times. Right. Um, you know, and uh, continue to watch my family and do their, you know, just live in life and for people to be healthy and enjoy the little things in life. Well, Craig, from all of us, including all your, your legions of fans out there, thank you so much for not only all you've done, all you've done off the field with the charity work, but for spending some time with us to help us get to know you a little bit better. We do appreciate it. You got it. Craig Biggio, the Hall of Famer, seven-time All-Star, winner of four gold gloves, 20 seasons in the big leagues, all of them with the Houston Astros. What a treat. Thanks again. Well, folks, thanks for checking out Major League Beginnings presented by Bet Online. And if you had as much fun as we did, please go ahead, hit the subscribe button anywhere you usually download your podcast from. You pick the platform, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, whatever you like. We're just glad to have you aboard. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.